Hi, everyone. Thanks for staying with us. Um, to start off uh, for our last set, uh, our next writer is Desiree Reynolds. She began writing in South London as a freelance journalist for the weekly Gleaner and The Voice. She's since written film scripts, poetry, and had her short stories published in Sable Litmag and various anthologies. Her first novel, Seduce, was published in 2013. Desiree is a journalist, teacher, broadcaster, and DJ, and is currently working on a collection of short stories, a novel set during the Haitian Revolution, and her PhD. Please welcome to the stage Desiree Reynolds. Hey. Hey. Oh, that's better. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I am reading from this collection of Black Elder's short stories. I'm reading Grace Singh's story. She's about, I think she's 84. She's about that high. Very rude. And this is called I Believe in Prayer. In the hospital, I woke in darkness, my shoulder hurting again. The sound of police sirens in the distance. I prayed until my asthmatic chest rattled like prayer beads. I wondered what heaven looked like. When we decided to come to London, I had visualized it as a place as beautiful as the rainforest. My friend, who'd heard stories about London, told me about the skyline and that it would be illuminated by stars. When I arrived, I could see nothing through the smog and factory smoke. I lay awake in the hospital bed, trying to color in the dark clouds that moved like little hearses across the sky, carrying my long-gone friends and family. My friends and family. My mind drifted back to youthful days in Georgetown, when we would fly kites on the beach at Easter, kites soaring everywhere, color washing the sky, kites snagging on stars, their colors fading away like the singing of the Salvation Army on Christmas Eve. Years after, I'd moved to London. My Kaitura Falls bracelet was stolen by a gypsy woman with roller coaster eyeballs. I let her into my house when she asked for some sugar. Anyway, you don't hang on to your gold forever. You must let it go. Pass it on to your children. Here in London, I gave all my jewelry to my grandchildren. I raised my husband's daughter as my own. What a lovely girl with a cinnamon-colored hair and nutmeg freckles. She suffered from depression bad. So I helped raise her children too, took them all for walks in the park on nice days. That helped ease the depression sometimes. My mother had been a salvationist and those were my values too. You needed values when you came here, more than gold. You needed salvation. That gypsy woman couldn't have known that. In Guyana, I volunteered with the Red Cross, worked in children's convalescence homes, rest houses, taking hot food to the poor. Salvation, prayer. I fell asleep again and woke 
from one of those strange, naughty, naughty dreams where I saw my family and friends back home dancing through golden fields. The fields were on fire, burning bright, burning into my shoulder. I was not sure if I was awake or sleeping or dreaming. I could hear steel pan drums and bongos, calypso. Calypso songs were about disputes between countries, fighting over land between man and woman, woman and woman, man and man. Men had to write letters to the parents of their women asking for permission to marry. My father took one look at the photo I showed him of the boy I wanted to marry and he snorted. He leaned back in his carved wooden chair, the gray smoke from his pipe floating around his throat. Boy, ain't nothing more than an irresponsible school. Why to me, he said. Father was right. In that first marriage, I was the one pushing the boat all the way to Africa where we went for my first husband's work. In Africa, I cut my way through the bush to get a roof over our heads because my husband was always taking one step forwards, two steps back. There we were in Africa, sleeping on mattresses until I cut my way through the bush to get keys for a house. Two jobs, five kids, just a irresponsible schoolboy. Next stop, London. We had two jobs each. My husband's second job was at a theatre in the city, collecting tickets. They heard him singing one evening and there, and then offered to train his voice. It was beautifully rich and deep, an unusual voice, but how could he train for anything with five children, two jobs? The doctors came the next morning, said my heart was enlarged. I already knew that. Too much love in. The walls are thin and stretched, ready to burst. My kidneys are failing. I have asthma and I've had a stroke. You're a walking miracle, the surgeon said. I'm not ready to go just yet, I said. I'm still here because I believe in prayer. The doctors said they would have to carry out a complicated procedure on my heart, said it would hurt bad, a burning pain. On the day of the procedure, I shut my eyes and prayed and cast my mind back to the day 70-odd years ago, back in Georgetown when I was 13 and ablaze. Hips, thighs, hair, I was on fire. I'd been polishing the floor with candle wax and petrol. I worried about the candle wax and the heat from the coal pot would be dangerous, so I went to move the coal pot. I picked it up and it exploded in my arms. I was on fire, burning, burning. No one expected me to live. My navel had been badly burned. Everyone knew that you would die if your navel was damaged. My mother had made a white dress for me to wear to the fair that weekend, and she thought she was gonna have to bury me in it. My poor mother. People don't think miracles happen, but I believe. I prayed not to die. I prayed not to be scarred on my face. My hair and head were on fire. My face was not burnt. All my scars are hidden on my thigh and my hip. It took seven years for my hair to grow back, but it grew back 
little bits each day that I prayed. Now whenever I pray, I dream of my dead mother. She comes and comforts me. I believe in prayer. After my heart procedure, the doctor asked how I managed the burning pain, and I told him I felt nothing. Nothing at all. I believe in prayer. All these things, they can't stop me from living. They keep me going. I go to our Golden Oldies Club every week. I love meeting new people, telling stories of a beautiful Guyana, the stars, the rainforests, the gold I live. I still go on holidays, although nobody would insure me. I went to Madeira a few months back. The holiday company asked me if I had insurance. Yes, I have insurance, I told them. God, insurance. Nothing happened to me on holiday. And even if it did, well, they would just have to be there, bury me there in Madeira. It wouldn't have mattered once I'd gone because I believe in prayer. Thanks very much, Desiree. And our next writer, Richard Skinner, grew up in Trinidad. His forthcoming novel, The Darks, is partly set in Trinidad, and an extract of the novel appears in the same anthology, Beautiful Blues. Richard is the author of three novels published by Faber and Faber, three books of nonfiction, and two poetry collections. His work has been nominated for prizes and is published in seven languages. Please welcome to the stage Richard Skinner. Hi everyone, um, thanks so much for coming out tonight and um, we hope that you enjoy the um, beautiful blues anthology. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to be reading from the anthology and I'm reading um, The Darks. The Darks. The first things Josiah saw when he arrived in Britain were the cranes of Barry Docks. They looked like huge sleeping storks. He stepped off the Dutch banana boat after 10 days at sea and surveyed the vast gray landscape of containers and warehouses. The sense of space was enormous. It was one of the most godforsaken places he'd ever been. The weather was sulky, though it was supposed to be late summer. The whole sky was the same shade of grey, and it was cold, colder than Josiah had ever experienced before, but he relished the sensation of cool air around his neck and face. His immigration papers came through in less than two weeks, after which he was dispatched to London with two addresses in his hand, one for the bed and breakfast assigned to him, and the other for the nearest DHSS office. He remembered little of the train journey from the tiny Welsh town to the capital, other than the length of time it took to pull into Paddington Station. There seemed to be endless rails feeding into or crossing one another and long, unexplained delays. Once there, Josiah spilled out of the train <coughs> with the crowds and into the chaos around the station. Cars and taxis roared by, 
People walked unnaturally fast in all directions, and he knew straight away he would never get used to this place. To his surprise, he found his way by tube to South London easily. After asking a couple of people outside Brixton Station for direction, he made his way to the B&B on Vassal Road. A woman with a bad cough showed him to his room. She had taken the piece of paper given to him by the immigration office and slipped it into the pocket of her housecoat without a word. The room had a small gas ring and a wash basin with no hot tap. He would have to boil water if he wanted to shave. The wardrobe, filled with multicolored hangers, rattled when he opened it. All mod cons, she'd said. He'd never heard the expression before. He went to the DHSS office where he was told he would have to an attend an interview in order to assess his employment status. The woman sitting at her desk didn't bother to look at him. She wore a gold ring on every finger, asked him question after question, ticking boxes when he answered. He lied and told her that he'd only had menial jobs since leaving high school. When she finished, she handed him a form to fill out telling him it was for council housing. Three days later, Josiah was offered a cleaning job in an office block. When he finished each afternoon at around 4 p.m., he walked home, pulled off his sweaty clothes and tossed them into a corner. He then showered a communal bathroom down the hall. Afterwards, arms and legs outstretched on his bed, he waited for the glistening sweat to evaporate away. The wall above his bed was smudged with the fingerprints of strangers. He was exhausted, but knew he wouldn't be able to sleep. So he turned on his side and listened to the sounds coming through his open window. After a couple of weeks of this, and just when he was getting used to the work, the contract was terminated. He had no idea why, and no one at the DHSS seemed to know. Over the next three years, he took on several cleaning jobs, Sooner or later, they all ended, and he found himself back where he started. There was never any warning or explanation. It wasn't as if he was asking for much. He was happy to live on a small scale within himself, but the humiliation of trying to make money this way was worse than having no money at all. What did he have here that made up for leaving Trinidad? Where was trouble going to come from next? Some people were followed throughout their lives by a beggar, and Josiah felt like one of those people. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. Well, um, our next writer. Uh, Zelda Riando lives in Brixton and is one of the organisers of the Brixton Book Jam. <laughs> She's the author of three books, Kappa Scripti, Fukushima Dreams and Good Morning Mr Magpie, which she will be reading from this evening. She's a contributor to the Poetry Library and an occasional journalist. When not writing, she can be found child wrangling and making digital products. Please welcome Zelda Riando to the stage. Thank you, Jess. Just a minute while I turn it to midget. 
Hello, can you hear me? That's probably a pity. Oh, thank you very much. Brilliant. Okay, um, as Jess said, I'm going to be reading from Good Morning, Mr. Magpie, featuring our very own Ruby Stewart. Put your hand up. Uh, so she'll be fact-checking me all the way through. Uh, it's about a woman who does everything the magpies tell her to. So without further ado. In a typical week, 25 cases went through the mortuary. At least half of those were infants, stillbirths, sudden death syndrome, some abuse cases. And every week there were hangings, drownings, and asphyxiations, a tide of suicides washing up on the doorstep of the mortuary, like flotsam from the Thames, overlapping at the riverbank, threatening to overwhelm them. This week was no exception. Seven cases, five men, two women. There were always more men, it seemed, of all ages, but 50-plus were the most common, peaking in the winter months. A couple of times a week, there'd be a jumper, some poor sod whose last action was to delay the journeys of thousands of people across the train network. Less frequent were the bridge jumpers. Was it because of the lack of witnesses? Or a worry that a jump from a bridge might not be guaranteed fatal? Such questions were academic, a matter for the number crunchers. Not something that Ruby usually had time to ponder when she was flat out, trying to keep ahead of the backlog. The new locum had called in sick again, and it seemed like it wouldn't be too long until the doctor signed him off. Stress. It got some people like that. Death. Day in. Day out. The full spread of human wickedness and weakness. So Ruby was down a body already, and the vice was off to... Annual leave, joy. Fingers crossed there weren't any major incidents or they'd be fucked comprehensively. Yeah. Ruby started assigning cases to the people that were in, giving herself the most complex and making sure she balanced the infants and the adults. There was nothing worse than a whole day of babies and few people had the mental fortitude to handle more than one infant abuse case a week. It was best to get these over early in the day and follow them with a couple of the more academic jobs. Speaking of which, Prof was due in on Tuesday, as he regularly did, to consult on some of the more abstruse and complex cases. It was probably about time she mentioned the messages to him. Hadn't seemed smart to do it by email. She should have said something after the first one, or at least the second. Now she's not quite sure how to broach the subject. She had no proof except some almost invisible cuts and a collection of scraps of paper in her pocket. It was true, they'd all been men, all middle to old aged, and they'd all apparently hung themselves. But that was not enough in itself to build a pattern. Why these few amongst the 200 people a year that die alone? with no one to arrange their funerals or treasure their effects. Old, male, and white. They were scattered all over South London. Someone has a problem with old white men? There have been five of them now. 
Ruby didn't know where to start, so she started with a list. Lists had always worked for her. In the left column, the victim's vitals. Name, age, gender, cause of death. Then next to that, P for possible, question mark for maybe, and X for no connection, clean. She was going to have to go back over the cases she'd already cleared, those that were still in the fridges, awaiting proper disposal, and satisfy herself she hadn't missed any clues. Ruby made herself a cup of tea and sat down at her desk again to mull over the problem. There must be a pattern. It was clear that the marks had been added after death. There was no blood around the neat incisions. So there must be a who and a when. Someone had access to the mortuary. There's no point looking for camera footage. No CCTV. Fingerprints? That kind of stuff lived in books. And anyway, the whole place was steam-cleaned regularly from top to bottom, with daily scrub-downs of all the work areas. The marks had been made by a surgical-quality instrument, probably a scalpel, of which there were many in the mortuary. One less would never be noticed. So, who and when? Hard questions to answer, and no clues apart from the fact that the body couldn't have been frozen when they were marked up. So, before, during, or after the first post-mortem, but before they went in the freezer, or immediately after death, which would suppose a single person there at, or shortly after, the time of death in each case. That didn't make sense. For someone to be connected to the deaths of so many random people would suppose they were a serial killer. In that case, why would they leave so many clues? Unless it was some kind of calling card. A lot of questions. Ruby was used to answering questions. After all, the key question she had to answer daily was, what was the exact cause of death? Which sometimes took considerable pathological detective work, not to mention a wide understanding of human nature and habits. Usually, the detective work started and ended in the mortuary. The real crimes handed over to forensic pathology, the investigation managed by the police. Again, she came back to the how. Hypothesis one, the cuts were inflicted immediately post-death. Unlikely, due to lack of blood, local trauma. The cuts were too fine. Sometimes suicide victims weren't found for days. Mm, okay, within 24 hours of death, maybe they stuck around to commune with the body for some reason. Hypothesis two. The marks appeared after the body was transferred to the hospital. Access to tools access to a range of bodies to add the marks to. And why? Maybe it was some kind of tagging system, a series of messages or warnings. Not a murderer, but a subtle way of linking a series of deaths as if to say, investigate me, please. And only likely to be noticed by Ruby or Zoe, who would tell Ruby immediately if she found something weird. 
Could it be a message from me? For some reason, crazy as it seemed, Ruby found herself leaning towards this as the most convincing explanation. It just felt right. In Ruby's experience, the simplest reason was usually the right one. The more complicated, the more likely that there were lies involved. So, assuming it was a message from me, who and how? Maybe the how would answer the who. How had someone got access to those cadavers? The mortuary shifts ran from seven to four normally. Anything after four was overtime, and the mortuary was pretty much guaranteed to be unstaffed. When? Nighttime. Of course, it was locked at night, but that wouldn't stop someone with the right level of access. One approach would be to cross-reference the date the bodies in question were admitted with the night shift rotors. With literally hundreds of staff on, that could be like looking for a needle in the proverbial. Or maybe not. Someone had to have access to the notes for each patient, then be able to match those to which the fridge they were stored in. Someone, therefore, who had access to computer records. Someone had to know their way around the mortuary, or at least have been there before. And someone had to be connected to Ruby. If I go with the assumption that barks are messages for me. Just then, Ruby's email pinged. Hi, Ruby. Yes, I'm still waiting for your software requisition. There's always one, isn't there? Lawrence. P.S. Cheese night? Lawrence. He could fit the bill. Access. Knowledge. But what motive? Why would Lawrence want to send me messages that way? The message theory was feeling like a tottering edifice of shite. But when you've ruled out the possible, times are wasting, Ruby. Autopsies won't do themselves. Hold that thought for later. Ruby shut down her computer and went to get suited up for the first case of the day. Thank you. Um, our last writer, Sherban V. Valian, is a young writer from Transylvania who currently lives in London. He has been scribbling since a young age, but only recently gave it more serious thought. In his own words, he says he writes for his own pleasure and hopefully for the pleasure of others. Also, he writes because he wants to get it out, and just because. Please welcome to the stage, Sherman V. Valian. Hello, beautiful people. Everyone all right? Good for you. I'm nervous as a mother lover, so just please bear with me. I am Sherban, and this is... This is my book. It's called The Angel's Game, and it's a really nice book, originally written in Spanish, translated in like 20-something languages. Anyway, if you want to just look it up, it's written by Carlos Ruiz Dafon. I, I would give you this one, but like I said, this is mine. It's my only copy, so sorry. Now, regarding my book, two reasons why I don't have it. 
First of all, I just got here from the airport. And second of all, I haven't quite finished writing it yet. But I do have something I hope you will enjoy. My mother enjoys it. So there we go. I think Weston is dead. <laughs> For the last two nights, I come home to find him in the same place I left him, drawn up into a little ball. I should check on him, but I don't want to disturb him. Somehow he looks peaceful. I don't know much about Weston. Um, that's not even his real name. It's just something I like calling him. He doesn't seem to mind, though. And he does look a little like a Weston. Well, he did anyway. He didn't say much about his life before we met, and I know very little about his life since we met. We shared a room for a little while, but we never actually got to know each other. He didn't make much of an effort to reach out, and me neither, which I think was fine for the both of us. Well, that's not actually entirely true. Sometimes he became very active, and it was really amusing to watch him go about his business, and I'm pretty sure he was doing the same. Especially at night, I think he was watching me sleep. Never caught him at it though, but I know he was doing it. He just looks like someone who does that sort of thing. Well, he did anyway, now he just looks like a raisin. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we only had one conflict. One night, I was coming home from a party, and needless to say, I was in high spirits. I came into the room, flicked on the lights, only to stumble upon Weston getting it on with a lady. Well, considering the position she was in and the fact that they didn't actually pause for breath when I walked in, not really sure she was much of a lady, but let's just call her Lady Weston anyway. I stayed there for a few seconds, surprised and unable to move, just watching them. Then, seeing as they didn't mind that I was there, I decided not to mind either that they were having sex in my room. I cheered Weston on, as it seemed the appropriate thing to do in this situation, and turned off the lights and went to sleep. I woke up around noon the next day. As I lay in bed, trying not to die, I remembered that Weston had a trying night as well. I looked for him, and I saw him in his usual place, resting. He looked pleased. A smile almost blossomed on my face, but it was gone before it could be more than a thought. On the other side of the room, I saw none other than Lady Weston. She was looking all smug and pleased with herself. I felt my heart growing cold. Something exploded in the back of my head, and my vision just slowly darkened from around the edges. All I could see was her content face and her sly smile. And I read her at once. She had him. That's what she was thinking. He was in her web now. She knew that after last night, she was pregnant. Of course, they would do it again that night, and maybe even the next night, just in case, and because she liked it. But she already knew it. She could feel it. She was pregnant. So I had to kill her. Uh, so no other way around it. She must have seen this in my eyes, though. As I was getting out of bed, fighting against the nausea, cursing at my headache, she tried to run. I could have laughed at that, but for my uncomfortable state. She had nowhere to run. The door was behind me, and she could never have reached the window in time. She did try, though. I looked for something heavy from the shelf next to me. I quickly considered and decided upon the hardcover edition of Wolves of the Kala by Stephen King. This seemed to suit the purpose. I chose this book because it looked appropriately heavy, 
and also because the illustrations on the cover was a mixture of different shades of intense red. It felt poetic somehow. I switched my gaze back to her. She was already halfway to the window by now, but not far enough, sad to say. In a heartbeat, I was behind her and slammed the book down on her head, hard. Her body fell limply to the floor behind me while I wiped the, wiped the book and put it back on the shelf. Weston, who had been woken up by the commotion, was now looking at me with shocked hatred. I wanted to apologize and to explain myself. Instead, I shoved my finger in my face and told him that it was all his fault. He knew the rules. If he brought home a date, she went home in the morning. He knew that I didn't want them hanging around, nesting in my room. And this one was doing just that. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, so this one was doing just that. Um, she was settling in. Next thing I knew, I would have little westerns crawling all over me. I told him I did him a favor, that he was better off like this. He seemed to want to agree with me, but he was still too shocked to say anything. He just needed more time. After all, the last thing he remembered was giving it to Lady Weston. And now he woke up just in time to see her head splattered against the wall. Not a pleasant day for him, I must say. But as it went, it was not going to be a pleasant day for me either. I left Weston there to come to terms with things as I crawled in my bed and tried to sleep it all away. And I hope Weston did the same. The issue was never discussed again, and things fell into their normal rhythm of living together without interacting. He never had anyone over after that day, not that I know of. I wonder if he still watched me sleep. Anyway, um, it looked like things were back to normal. Well, up until yesterday, which is why th when I think Weston died. Shit, I really should check on that. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Um, a bit jet-lagged, a bit nervous. And yeah, I think I kind of messed it up just a bit. At one point, yeah, but at one point I should have mentioned one detail. Uh, Weston, my good friend Weston, because this is a true story. Uh, Weston was this small spider that crawled into my room one day. And instead of killing him, I decided to let him live for a while. So he gave me this story. Cheers to him and to his memory. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sherban. Um, well, that's it for another Brixton Book Jam. Um, I think you'll agree that we've heard from a great mix of writers and writing styles and comedy and drama and the whole gamut of things this evening. Um, we, we really hope you'll join us back here um, on Monday the 5th of June. Um, and in the meantime, um, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter, uh, find us on Facebook at Brixton at Brixton Book Jam, um, or online at brixtonbookjam.com. You can find out, um, oh, the bookstall is still open, so there's a few books left, although there's been a writing, um, buying spree. And um, it'd be great if you, if you are on Twitter or Facebook, um, put up a comment tonight. Tell us what you liked best, because we love to hear from you um, and uh, create a conversation around uh, the books that we love. So thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, and um, see you soon. Oh.
Thank you to the Hootenanny who uh, provided us with the fabulous green room. Thank you to Jerome. Um, sound extraordinaire. And, um, and everyone here who's helped out this evening. Um, we'll see you on the 5th of June. Thanks. Good night. <laughs>